Alright, ready for episode two. Uh, it's okay, most episode twos really suck. I mean, do you even remember the second episode of DS9? I tell you, you probably remember the second episode of TNG because it had to do with Data getting drunk. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't remember what the second episode of TOS is because we're doing the, the Memory Alpha order in order to keep easier track of. But So here we go. It's not as bad as I thought. But it did leave me with a certain feeling, which I'm not going to tell you because I want to build up to that. So bear with me. So this is written by Burnham and Braga. Berman and Braga. Jeez. And it shows. <laughs> uh, Alan Croker was brought on to direct it. That was actually a good choice. Uh, Alan Croker is a very good technical director. You may know him as the guy who did the season, excuse me, the series finale of Space Nine and the series finale of Voyager and the series finale of Enterprise. He's done a few other things too, of course, but they brought him in for this one and it's like, hey. He's like, yeah, sure. And he did manage to get several good angles, but, well, most of what I see from him is more interesting in the first half than in the second half, which is what I could say about the episode as a whole, actually. So then we have a slug analogy. Uh, what I'm just going to go ahead and refer to as the obvious slug analogy. <sighs> I can't explain why this bugs me. I can't. If anybody out there in the comments would like to share, please feel free. Because normally I'm fine with symbolism or analogies or metaphors or whatever when it comes to an episode. But this episode is so obvious about the fact that the slug is Hoshi. Or is an analogy for Hoshi. And that it actually says it outright twice. Once in the middle of the episode where as uh, Flox is walking away he says, well, maybe you know the slug would be better off teaching. And the second thing is at the end where Hoshi talks to herself about how it's not that hard to adapt. And I don't know, the whole thing just fell apart for me, which is a shame because I actually kind of liked Hoshi in this episode other than the slug analogy, but I'll move on to that in just a moment. <clears throat> so then... Something interesting happens. Tucker comes in and says, we've routed more power to sickbay. Now, God, I, I, guys, I think I might be a geek. Because it's the single, of the whole episode, I've got a page and a half of notes here. That one line got my attention more than anything else. I'm not even joking. And now we're going to talk about it. Because I'm a geek. And you probably are too. Hi, welcome. Uh, here's your badge if you want it. Join us. So, one of the assumed things about modern Trek, that is to say TNJ, TNG, up to Voyager, is that they the, the warp engine pumps out an absolutely ludicrous amount of power, right? Just... This is... This is how something like the Galaxy-class ship is even possible, with the incredible amounts of energy drain that it uses constantly in order to keep thousands upon thousands of concurrent systems working, all of which are incredibly power... Uh, inefficient, I think is the way I want to do that. And all of them are working at the same time, no less. This is also how something like Voyager can manage what it can do. But, my personal favorite example, this is why the Defiant is such a glass cannony ship. Because what they did is they took all that power and said, shoot it. <laughs> Let's, we've got this tech with this incredible energy generation. 
pump that into the phaser banks. And they've got that unique sound of the quad phaser cannons, which you can actually get in STO too. That sounds just as cool. And that is awesome and makes sense. I'm going to be saying that kind of thing a lot when it comes to these ruminations. I'm down with something that's awesome or cool, you know. But if it makes sense, that just makes it all the better, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm on board with that idea in modern Trek. This is not modern Trek. And if you weren't tired of me constantly talking about the tone of everything being more down-to-earth and less tech-heavy, well, then you're going to be hearing a lot of that in this episode at the very least. I don't know if I'll discuss it in the future. It might come up again. I don't know, because remember, I barely remember Season 1 and 2. But it definitely comes up here multiple times. First time, power rerouting. They don't have that much power, so everything can't be run full tilt all the time. That got me thinking about power management. That got me thinking about two separate directions. One, ah, that sounds like a cool video game mechanic, actually. Uh, something kind of like FTL, if you've ever played that, but way more so. Like, imagine you're running a ship like as like a management sim kind of thing. And sure, there's probably combat, but it's more of the, you're looking at the stats of your ship rather than kind of a combat. And you have to manage a, a limited energy pool. I mean, Hell's Bells, even TIE Fighter did this back in the day, where depending on the ship you were flying, that determined how much total energy output you had. And you could distribute that to engines, weapons, and if you were really lucky, shields. <laughs> shields and a tie. <laughs> you get the idea. I was with it. I like that concept. So that got me thinking about a video game idea, which I'm totally going to make someday. But then I started thinking in the other direction. Politics. Imagine different people at different aspects of the office, each insisting that their particular thing is more valuable or more relevant than the others, that they need that extra juice so they can work on their thing. I could see multiple story ideas that blossom out of that. I could see that being a recurring subplot across multiple episodes as different factions, for lack of a better term. And again, this is basically office politics level, so this isn't like, you know, full tilt Game of Thrones. You have chosen... No, no, it's, it's none of that. But this is more along the lines of, you know, I want to say stellar cartography, but they don't have that. The engineering department is trying to constantly balance the needs of Reed and his department. And, of course, they've got the sick, sick bay, which has to have its own thing in order to maintain a very specific environment so that the little menagerie can stay good. So he argues that needs all the power all the time, but that means it has to be pulled away from others, which Phlox then gets pulled in as like, oh, Phlox, and other people try to get in good with Phlox in order to convince him that he can convince Tucker, who is the one who's actually managing this mess, who gets the energy. And Tucker, of course, just is trying to help everybody so he's not really used to this kind of office politics thing and what if you want this to pull this over here and the gravity's been pulled down in three decks now at this point just to keep your lab running please tell me i'm not the only one who would find that interesting ah oh. one line one line so then we cut forward uh, archer hears a squeak Nice touch. Uh, I don't think I ever noticed this before, but again, I barely remember these episodes. There actually is a very light metallic skate in the background a few times as the scene progresses. So there is actually the noise there. Of course, it doesn't show up when DePaul's present, because why would someone who has superior hearing be able to hear something like that? That's ridiculous. But 
you know, the squeaks going on, and what ensues is something that I'm already tired of, and we're at the second episode. To Paul and Archer butting heads. Now, I get it. He's prejudiced, he's biased, he has only begun to acknowledge that. That's going to take time to get over. Okay. It doesn't make it any less uncomfortable or unpleasant to watch, but it is still something I can at least understand intellectually. It's just uncomfortable and unpleasant to watch. As I said, I'm building to a point here. Anywho, this then leads to him insisting that, you know, they've gone in this direction, and it's like, what about the Vulcan star charts? Well, we didn't really go in this area. Why not? Well, Vulcans don't really explore based on curiosity. This then leads to a question, and now I'm going to pause the episode again, because they didn't actually answer the question. The question is, what do Vulcans explore based on? Now, Archer has some kind of side comment, which sounds like a snide remark, about how Vulcans, there needs to be a pragmatic, practical reason for everything, which is stupid. But nevertheless, that is as close to we get as an answer to the question, because T'Pol doesn't actually answer it. But that got me thinking. What if that actually is how the Vulcans explore? They do a long-range scan, they look over an area, and they say, huh, that looks like that might have resources. That's a good position in order to use as a depot or a uh, outpost. And that over there looks like it has intelligent life. So we'll go here, here, and here, see if we can establish diplomatic contact, maybe get some kind of, you know, get an embassy thing going on. Because remember, we know that Vulcans have diplomatic contact with Kronos, which, I hate to remind you, is way the hell over that way. Now you might think, well, why is that significant? Because... And I, I know, I know, I know, I know. There's no official Star Trek maps, and everyone constantly corrects me when I bring that up. But um, So using the unofficial Star Trek maps, which I'm going to continue to do because, God damn it, you need some geography in your fiction. There, <laughs> here's Earth. Uh, I'll do it mirrored because it's you guys. And Kronos is way down here. Romulus is actually closer. It's up here. But Kronos is way down here, right? So that's a heck of a trip. But what Earth seems to be wanting to do is... You know, let's, let's refocus on Earth. It wants to do this. Now that makes sense if your main focus is exploration. They want to do a slowly expanding bubble. But by the Vulcans' mentality, what they're doing is very strategic and careful maneuvering. This actually would make even more sense for anybody who's played any space-bound 4X game. Because, sure, you could just check everywhere near you and constantly colonize everything immediately close to you, or you can notice that that system over there has a much better resource allocation and more population room, and it connects to another system and another system, and this leads you to have territorial borders that look like this. Which it sounds like is exactly what the Vulcans did. So I don't think any of this was intentional, but this actually makes perfect sense. The idea that the Vulcans have, if we were to use a map, if we were to, to zoom out, to zoom out here, and look at the galaxy, well, look at this quadrant of the galaxy, what the Vulcans probably have is like a spiderweb branches of exploration going on here, 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 and here, in the areas that they found useful. We know they at least have one branch going <clears throat> south, because that leads to Andoria, and that's going to be a thing that comes up in the future. We also know they have a branch going way southwest, or excuse me, southeast, because that leads to Kronos. Just just food for thought. Unfortunately, the episode doesn't answer this, so this is all just me trying to engage my brain while watching Enterprise. Maybe I'm maybe I'm trying too hard. 
But I'm not. I'm not trying too hard. I'm not trying at all. This is just my, my stream of consciousness. Please forgive me. That's kind of how I do things. Hi, my name's Lore Runner. Um, the whole nature of these ruminations is I'm acting as if you just sat down and watched the episode with me, or alongside me, and now we're chatting about it. I do read the comments, so if you want to share anything and tell me how stupid and dumb I am, you are more than welcome to. It's down there. <clears throat> I read all the comments that come through here. Every single one of them. It's a daily routine for me. Anywho. So. Reed and Merriweather. Wow, I keep doing that. I actually have Mayweather written down, and I keep calling him Merriweather. Maybe I should just call him Travis. <laughs> I just... I don't even remember a character for him, other than the fact that he's been in space. Reed and... Mayweather, Travis, have been working on targeting. Two interesting points about this. First of all, they mentioned this should have been done before they left. That is actually a little bit of a side plot, a subplot, that is going to show up at least in a few episodes. So kudos for that. Second point, it makes perfect sense that they need to do this because of course they freaking need to do this. They are trying to use weapons that they've never really used before under extraordinary conditions. If you try, and, and what they are effectively doing is shooting missiles. This is not ballistics. This is not fire and forget. This is, I am shooting something that itself has a targeting program, which is constantly running as it moves and, and adjusts to the many thousands of variables of flying through space at Mach whatever. I know Mach doesn't apply here, but you get the idea. So it makes sense. This is the kind of thing that would need to be very carefully, very boringly, if we're being honest, hammered out. The fact that they agree with the idea of pulling down and saying, okay, we, we need to do practical tests, makes perfect sense. Because, of course, they need to do practical tests. In fact, what happens is actually extremely logical. They do uh, simulator tests until they basically run into the limit of what they can simulate. Then, what should have happened is Reed reach out to the captain, but instead the captain reaches out to Reed, and Reed is like, well, okay, what ha what should have happened is Reed should have said we've run into the limit of what we can do. But then what happens is the captain points out that they've run into the limit. God, he is so Janeway. Just uncomfortable, you know? Anyways, so <clears throat> they run into the limit what they can do with simulations. They need to do practical testing to get more data to do more simulations to figure things out. This is standard process. What ex this is exactly what happens, too. They go out, they fire their torpedoes, they fail miserably. One of them nearly destroys their own ship, or at least causes them damage. Remember, no shields. Although, it's okay, they got hull planning. And then they're like, okay, go ahead and start working on it. You got about a day, it'll take you about a day, get to work. We'll stop again whenever we're ready to stop again. All of this is exceptionally logical with one issue, and that's the fact that Archer refuses to just hang out around the convenient targeting area during this period of time, for one day, which is not a lot. Now, this is part of the undercurring thread of the first half of this episode. Oh god, we've been out here for two weeks and we haven't found anything. This is going to sound so strange, but I actually really like that idea. Now, hear me out for a second. Once again... I am once again, I so just do a Bernie meme at this point. I am once again bringing up the tonal thing, the bringing the tech level down thing. Because in the Enterprise D, this would be stupid. Because the Enterprise D can go warp 8 cruising speed and can scan multiple dozens of light years away simultaneously in every direction. They are, the idea of them traveling for two weeks and finding nothing is nonsensical. But this ship which can manage warp 4.5 if it pushes, 
and can only scan a few hundred meters other than just basically like when they detect the ship they weren't even a hundred percent sure it was a ship and they and the only thing they could really tell about it was that it wasn't moving and then they had to get closer to check it out and then they had to get within what is basically hugging distance in interstellar terms well, that's a that's actually a wrong way. In, in space in, in spaceship terms, they had to get within hugging distance in order to actually scan the sucker. So it's entirely feasible and and kind of ironic to think about the idea that that Enterprise is doing this, and there's all sorts of stuff that they're just missing because they can't, they don't have the tech for it. So I'm with it. This also then lines up with what was said earlier, that they have a specific path that Starfleet already gave them to follow. This is the route we want you to take. A, it makes sense that they probably already sent some long-term, long-range probes in that area, so, you know, they have the vaguest idea of what might be in the area, roughly. And B, assuming competence here, so forgive me, it might actually follow some kind of pattern to allow for maximum possible results. Even under those circumstances, though, two weeks without anything isn't really out of bounds. So, I, I, I'm really with the concepts that this episode is positive in the first, like, five minutes. I, how long have I been talking? This is all, like, in the first... I, all these are all bullet points. I do bullet points. Uh, this is I've gotten really efficient about my note-taking because I've been doing this for nine years. And, you know, I, I've just got bullet points. And I'm up to, I'm up to bullet point, like, eight here. I'm nowhere. Then, we have another scene that I really like. I, I wrote it in my note. The bullet point I have written down is flocks in the mists. What we see is flocks being properly alien and actually really well done. By memory, I don't like flocks all that much. I, I have no particular memory of him that is fond, uh, other than the Klingon stuff in Season 4, which I won't spoil right now for those of you watching this with me, but... For those of you who are aware of it, that's the only thing I even remember him about. So I don't really remember him fondly or negatively. It's just he's there and also Dear Doctor. But I like the idea of this guy who is wonderfully affable and alien at the same time. The fact that he views this as some kind of expedition. Not in space. Oh yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, that's just the job. But the thing that really piques his interest is interacting with the people. I love that especially as someone who has been an observer of humanity for uh, my entire life. And I admit I am a bit of a geek about how people tell things, the tones they use and the, the eye movement and the, the nature of what they do with their face or their hands or their body or their shoulders or how they move while they're doing it. Occasionally they clench and just... There's all sorts of things. There's dozens and dozens and dozens of signals people give as they communicate or don't communicate which then of course communicates you know i've talked about this before so seeing flocks just kind of geeking out about what is effectively the same thing in such an innocently alien way do you think they'd let me watch that actually tickled me so i hope you've enjoyed me gushing because we're done this then leads to the alien ship first first complaint this is episode two. Now, if this was a brand new show that had never done this before, I could forgive them this mistake. But, but, remember, this is in many cases, in many t ways, the same team that has worked on three separate successful shows. This should have been pushed back. 
This should have been episode five, maybe even seven. Now, that I, I, I'm saying that roughly and vaguely. Uh, in the upcoming episodes, I glanced here. We've got uh, Brave New World, or whatever it's called. It's not called Brave New World. That's the name of the book. But, you know, the New World episode and Breaking the Ice. Both of those episodes have nothing to do with contact with alien races. I would have filled more of the early arc of the first season with interacting with space than interacting with people, then do this episode. This not only... First of all, this makes more of a build-up with regards to their kind of relative feel and tone make more sense. Because they have been out here for several episodes, which means we, the audience, have now been out here for several episodes without seeing a single alien. Other than a Vulcan, if you count that, or a Denobulan, if you count that. And that and we don't, obviously. So, now, we are in the same general boat they are. Where the heck are the aliens? Second point, well, this is kind of a horror episode, or at least it should be. It, it fails miserably, in my opinion. But the point being, this should be a horror episode. They even don't reveal the name of the enemy aliens. And I did some digging, and no, we have no idea who or what they are. So... That would have more impact if if they they go several several episodes, and then we finally encounter an alien ship, and then it's a bunch of bodies dangling upside corpses, excuse me, dangling upside down, being drained of their precious fluids. That buildup would have more impact if it had been built up. This then leads to Archer sucking. As per usual, he does not know how to give a speech, and he also gives directions to Earth. <sighs> okay. Um, uh, you know what, I think I'm going to save my thoughts on that until later. All I'm going to say is that that's, that's just astonishingly stupid, for so many different reasons. I... <laughs> I, I bet you, right now, watching this, watching me, having recently, or at some other point in your life, watched this episode, can name eh, about ten other alien races, just in Star Trek, where if first contact was, hi, here's Earth, would be an extremely bad idea. I can name one right off the top of my head. The Klingons. <sighs> Moving on. T'Pol is very against this. Uh, that's because she has a brain. What I'm completely with, though, I hate to comment on this yet again, I already mentioned this earlier, they have to get really close to the ship to scan it. And even then, they hesitate quite some time, almost two full minutes, before they finally decide to go ahead and scan the sucker. I like both of those points. First, again, the limitation of the tech, but second of all, it shows how completely out of their depth they are here, which is good. Because as I pointed out, one of the things I remember liking about Archer is how much over his in over his head he is, how screwed he is, how ill-suited he is to being captain. So, uh, T'Pol is against going over because, you know, she's thinking about this rationally. And everyone tells her to screw off because of slanting. I know I hate to keep pointing that out, but the episode is literally portrayed in such a manner that, you know, Archer is right, and T'Pol is wrong. <sighs> then, we see a bit where Tucker really wants to go on the away mission. Now, 
this is basically framed as the idea that Tucker really wants to explore. That his big thing is, I want, I want to be an explorer. I haven't done any exploring. Again, this would make a little more sense if this was episode six, but moving on. Archer turns him down, and the exact argument he gives is, this ship's a little too young to go without its chief engineer. Huh. Apparently, it is not too young to go without its captain. I, I can't be the only one who sees how amazingly self-defeating his own argument is. Why is he going on this mission? Well, we know why he's going on this mission, because he's Archer. I almost, I honest to God, almost said Janeway just now. In private, he at least questions the thing. You know, he's like, oh, God, she's right, and this is a waste of thing, but I'm not sure, and blah, blah, blah. And then, oh, she comes in. Um, Hoshi comes in, and he puts his foot down on her and says, no, you absolutely cannot not go on this mission. Which is strange, because, I mean, the reason for that is because this is a Hoshi mission, but logically speaking, he doesn't give any actual reason for why he does this. By the way, um, if you're paying attention, I think this is now the eighth time in two episodes I've pointed out that Archer does something that's not necessarily smart for no actually explained reason. I sure hope that's just how Brown and Braga write him, because holy crap, this is already getting old. You can tell when I'm tired of pointing out something, a flaw of Star Trek, you can tell that this, what the heck. But anyways, uh, let's move on, let's move on. So, um, they go down to the weapons room. Reed wants to bring a full complement of Arsenal, and he says no. No reason given. <laughs> Dang it! No reason given. It's just, no, no, we don't need that. Um, so, uh, allow me to share a quote. I'm going to screw up this quote. Please forgive me. Having and not using is discipline. That, that's the cost of that. If you, if you go in prepared and you have all these guns, you know, the argument is usually, well, then you'll be tempted to use the guns. Well, the cost for being prepared is discipline. Okay? Now, <clears throat> If you are not prepared, if you decide to go in and don't have the guns and then you need them, the cost of that is you're screwed. So forgive me for being on the, the military guy's side here, because that's what Reed is, let's be honest, the weapons guy, because I would much rather have the guns and not need to use them than to find out that we needed them. I know, I know, at least they take the face pistols, but come on. Uh, so, the reveal, which should have been a really good scene, and kind of is. Uh, credit to Linda Park, by the way, I'll, I'll give her credit. She actually is probably one of the biggest reasons why this episode doesn't completely suck. When I was, uh, well, you know, no, no, I'll save that for later, I'll save that for later. So, we find out that the alien crew has been slaughtered, and that they are being drained for their precious, delicious fluids... Uh, no explanation of why. I will give, I'm going to go ahead and say Braga, credit on this one. Because I feel like that is the kind of mystery that this this sort of science fiction can really work with. And again, would work really well if this was episode 6. Because we don't know why they're draining those fluids. Uh, Phlox comes up with a couple of hypotheticals, but otherwise we don't know. They never communicate. We don't know their name or their species or even what they look like. We just know they showed up, murdered a bunch of people, hung them up, 
like a bunch of slabs of meat and started ripping fluids out of them. That is an appropriate slice of horror that is almost immediately forgotten for the entire rest of the episode. This is why I say this probably should have been a horror episode, because the buildup of the, the casual and the normal and the mundane, the almost boring nature of the first part of the episode, I, I don't actually mean boring, but you know what I mean. You know, the tempo is very slow-paced up until they get there, and then bam. Corpses, draining fluids, no idea. So we flip out and we leave. This then leads to T'Pol basically telling him we need to get out of here. Now, what I love about that is she's absolutely right. And, and once again is being a better captain than he is. I feel like this is going to be a trend. Because she points out what you did was admirable and your attempt to help was correct. However, you have failed. They are beyond help. And now you need to think about your crew. She is 100% in the right there. And yet, there is another layer to this. Okay? Now, I'm going to get to that in just a second. This then leads to the scene where Hoshi and Phlox absolutely slam the symbolism of the slug right in your face. I don't have anything to say about it. Which leads us to the dinner scene. Hey! There we are. Chess. The dinner scene uh, sucks. Because what it is, is Tucker is the one constantly trying to make peace between T'Pol and Archer, who are both grousing. Well, no. I'm going to rewind that. Archer's grousing. T'Pol is just eating. Tucker's trying to make peace. And then, check this out. T'Pol reaches out with a balm. Now, if that doesn't sound significant, I want to remind you that this is a Vulcan who has just attempted to reach out in a social manner to make peace with other, in a cultural sense, with other people in like an office thing. Like, God, I'm explaining this so badly. The way Vulcans tend to be written in general is they don't tend to do things like, hey, you're feeling down, why don't we do this to make you feel better? That. Whatever you want to call that. That's the kind of thing Vulcans generally don't do. There are exceptions, obviously, but that's what she does. She says, hey, that sucked. But there's an interstellar nursery nearby. That could be really cool. Help bring everyone's tension level down. Why don't we check that out? That's thoughtful. It's helpful. It's awesome. Naturally, the most logical possible reaction to that is to actually get upset and start ranting at her over it, and then start ranting at Tucker when he doesn't immediately agree with him. So then he's a dick, and they go back. Now here's the caveat I mentioned earlier. See, the thing is, getting the heck out of Dodge is the kind of thing they should have been prepared to do, but allow me to go ahead and share what I would have done, and I actually imagine several of you would have too. All right, high alert. I want a, a route out of here, a warp, a jump, uh, warp jump? I, I want to know exactly how we're getting out of here, and I want to be ready to jump to warp at a moment's notice. I want the ship to be very close to the other ship so that the shuttle takes very little time to get back. Because remember, we don't have the transporters right now, low-tech. Totally with. I'm still enjoying that vibe. The low-tech vibe. I hope it sticks. It's okay. They won't beam anyone on board the next episode. So, we go down. We investigate. And that's exactly what they do. 
now after having left and then thrown a, a pissy rant at his two senior officers and then going back wasting tons of time on needless drama. Instead, what happens is now they are so late in their actions that this is when the enemy ship actually freaking shows up. <sighs> Great. Also, given the construction of events, it's entirely likely that if they had just stayed and investigated and gotten the distress signal out early, what might have happened is they would have actually been able to reach out to the other Axanar ship, that's what they are, the Axanar, um, before the enemy ship, the unnamed enemy ship, came back, which could have gone well or badly. I'm building to the point, I swear. <clears throat> so they investigate. They figure out how to work the ship, they get the power back on, kind of. They try. They send out the distress signal. They scan this. They actually do a post mortem. Figure out what killed them. It's actually multiple things. They figure out what they're draining them for. All of this is valuable and useful information. That, that's it's so critical. It, it, it's even something to Paul said in the last episode. Know what, so you know how. That, that's my truncated version of it. But that, that's 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 the point of it. Now you know what to do because you know how to do. And it just loops. It loops beautifully. So, they figured out all this stuff. And again, I love the fact that this is the value of lack of tech. They have to investigate in person. They do the postmortem on the enemy ship, excuse me, on the Axonar ship. Because they have to. They don't have the kind of scanning tech. They don't have tricorders. They don't have any of that fancy stuff. They are way down to bare bones. I mean, it takes Hoshi forever to figure out what she's doing with the computer just to translate... Three words, ship in distress. I love that. Then, the enemy ship shows up. Naturally, they look big and evil. Uh, T'Pol is, as usual, completely on it, and being a good captain, because she should be the captain. <clears throat> Another value, by the way, of low-tech, no micro-jumps. I feel like I have to explain that one because it's not something that comes up a lot in Star Trek or Star Wars, but both have the same concept. A micro jump is exactly what it sounds like. You warp a very short period, a very short distance to cross what is effectively a short, and a short distance interstellarly, but it would take you forever at impulse, right? You know, warping in system is usually how this kind of thing is said, which either is dangerous or isn't dangerous, and Star Trek is amazingly inconsistent about that, so let's, let's just leave that at the door and never talk about it ever again, because it's dumb. But Star Wars uses that concept, too. It's actually extremely dangerous to do in Star Wars, because you need very, very careful and relative... Uh, you need to be following a specific path in Star Wars. You can't just hyperspace jump anywhere, and there's... Uh, you need... Points of reference, there we go, that's what I'm thinking. Points of reference in order to make sure you end up at the same relative spot, and even if you show up at the same relative spot, you could be hours of sublight travel from each other, and blah, 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 blah. So it's a very dangerous thing to do, and it's very seldom done in both things, but it's still available. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because the moment you make something available, a tool is now in the arsenal of the characters, and this then prompts the question every time they don't use it, why are they not? There are many times in Star Trek where micro-jumps would have solved a lot of issues. Here, the enemy ship can't micro-jump. It pulls out of warp way over there, and then it slowly meanders over here, and they get about ten minutes to deal with this. They wouldn't have had those ten minutes if micro-jumps were available, or if their warp jump or warp drive in general was far more precise. 
you can see why the low-tech thing actually adds to storytelling. I hate to keep hammering this point in, especially since my own setting is ludicrously high-tech, but point remaining, right? <clears throat> I, I just keep praising this because I swear they're going to screw this up at some point. Or maybe they won't. I don't know. Maybe they won't. Maybe it'll stay low-tech and it'll be awesome. I don't know. I, I mean, my favorite episode of the series by memory is Damage, so what the hell do I know? Anyways, enemy big ship. It's super evil-looking. And it's showing up, and they have to dock the pod, and it's taking forever to pull this in. But then they can't warp out because it took forever. This is officially the moment when the episode, which I, I was already kind of like, eh, on, completely loses me. Boy, it feels like I've said that before recently. Because what happens is, this should have the general tonality of Q-Who. Or, to use another TNG example, Best of Both Worlds Part 1. I could also mention Sacrifice of Angels, but the point is, they are facing an implacable foe, which they can't do jack to, which they barely understand, which is making no attempt to communicate with them, and wants to harvest them. That should be portrayed as horrifying, but the combination of tone and the focus of the character bit, which I'll talk about in just a second, completely ruins that, as well as the conclusion. Instead of this being some horrifying, terrifying threat, well, it feels like a threat of the week. But but it shouldn't, even though it is. Remember, the Borg and Q-Who really were a threat of the week. The fact that they came back doesn't change that. But they still managed to make the Borg terrifying within the confines of that limitation. And it was all down to the way they were presented, the way the music was done, the way the characters reacted to it, and the focus of the episode, which was all about Picard, Q, and the fact that they couldn't do anything about the Borg. Now, this episode has several of the same pieces. I wouldn't be surprised if they were trying for a similar vibe. But all of it falls flat completely. Here, the focus is about Hoshi, but her story arc is about communication, which means the solution to the problem has to be communication. Now, you can't communicate with the Borg, so... Attempts at communicating with the evil ve vo vessel are completely off the board. No pun intended. So that's not the answer to the episode. So they bring in the other Axonar ship. So that becomes the solution to the episode. But this immediately saps a lot of the drama of the moment. I suppose we could dance around this and talk about it, but the fact of the matter is, once Hoshi successfully solves the puzzle that the threat of the week is presenting, which again is a communication puzzle, once she successfully communicates with the guy, he shoots the enemy ship once. They then shoot it with one torpedo. The, the Axonar ship then shoots it three times. It is three, right? I counted. Three shots. Yep, nope, I'm right. You know what happens after four shots and one torpedo? Because the threat of the week was solved. The quest, the puzzle required the communication victory. Once the communication victory was... You see why I'm structuring this this way? Because this is clearly what was going through the minds of the writers. We need to have this be a test of Hoshi. Hoshi's about communication and translation. So we get this to be a communication threat and then the communication solution. I'm with that in a separate episode. This feels like two ideas smashed together and the result just completely loses me. First, we have the Q-Who thing, which I've already mentioned several times. The implacable threat, which they cannot negotiate with, which they cannot deal with. Okay, that's horrifying. 
and in many ways there should be a despair and there's a unique feeling a unique feeling of pressure and tension when you realize that you just can't do anything that you are actually helpless i know what that feels like in real life it sucks so getting across that vibe in fiction, which is extremely rare in my opinion, uh, but every now and again it happens, is just that kind of, it, it ramps the tension up like crazy. That doesn't happen here. Because there is a solution, it's the other ship, which can just effortlessly blast them away. Having this, having the the evil ship, the evil vessel, and their, their sucking things should have been in another episode entirely. This should have been about the Axenar. They go on board, they find them, oh god, what do we do? And it looks like they came into some accident or something, who knows, doesn't matter. And, I mean, I, we could come up with something, right? Maybe, uh, maybe it was a, one of their deep space exploration vessels. How's that sound? And the threat of the week then doesn't become, oh god, the Axenar can destroy us, although they probably could with the way our weapons are going. But no, the actual threat becomes, we might make an enemy out here. All of a sudden, the shift goes from literal threat of the week to more intangible threat of the week, something that would definitely be in the purview of the diplomats, especially someone who can then communicate with them, because diplomacy is so much about communication. And all of a sudden, things line up perfectly, don't they? We have to convince them it wasn't us. We didn't attack them. We swear there's just uh, scan the things. And by the way, during the big climactic scene, it's not about the enemy ship that's coming in. It's all about Hoshi and her connecting with the Axanar captain. That's the focus. Which I'm with if the enemy ship didn't exist. During that scene, though, I do want to give praise again to T'Pol. Twice, twice during that scene, she actually consoles and helps to, to be a commander to Hoshi and tells her what she needs to hear, and does it in a fairly good way. And then Archer jumps in and is like, no, and, you know, wins, because Archer's right. Because, see, if things didn't line up just this way, things might have gone very badly. They might have encountered the Axenar and been shot, or they might have caught the enemy ship and been screwed, because the Axenar wouldn't have got over, and they wouldn't have had the, the other Axenar ship there, if not for the fact they sent out distress signal, which they wouldn't have done, if he hadn't decided to go ahead and meddle with the enemy ship. So Archer was right, and the episode frames it like that very clearly. Archer made the correct call. He even talks about their first contact thing. Boy, that would have been a cool episode. But, I mean, I can't possibly imagine an entire feature film or an episode or many episodes being entirely about the concept of first concept, contact. That's, that's ludicrous. No, we should do it off camera. Then Hoshi talks to herself. I, I mean, the slug, sorry. And feel-good music plays. Very, very, very generic feel-good music. <sighs> I started off this episode pretty into it. And by the end, I just I wanted to stop watching it. I had that exact same feeling that I've told you about before already. That, you know, when I went to re-watch season one and I failed. I wanted to stop watching because it was just so uncomfortable and awkward to go through. But now... <clears throat> Well, now i got analysis mode on, and it's my job to talk about this, so let's talk about this. Why is this so damned uncomfortable to sit through? I'm going to pause for a moment. I'd love to hear your answers to that. And, and, and of course, some of you will probably say, it's not, it's great, what's wrong with you? And I'm, okay, valid. <laughs> it is entirely my own opinion on the line here. Nothing more. So if you like this episode, that's awesome. 
as I think I've made clear, there's actually several really cool aspects to this episode. So why do I want to stop watching it? After I finished this episode, I did something unusual. I got up and just walked around my apartment a few times, thinking, just processing. Um, which is pretty rare for me. Usually I cut off and then I immediately, you know, chunk, chunk, switch over. I'm already in uniform and I immediately start recording because I have to record five of these a day. So, you know, I'm kind of, kind of in a kind of in process mode here. But I kept processing because I was trying to figure out what made me feel so awkward and uncomfortable watching it. And I started to realize that it really did center around two big things. The first is Archer. I like Scott Bakula, but he is thoroughly unpleasant in basically every scene he's in, to the point where I actively, legitimately believe that if he was completely hang on, completely removed from the episode, the episode would actually be better for it. It's not good. The second thing is that there's so many interesting ideas here that never go anywhere. I bet you could name a dozen shows, books, movies, games, where... It's like, oh, that's so cool, or, oh, that's such an engaging idea that it doesn't actually follow through on. I know several people would say Voyager does that, and Voyager did do that, although I think Voyager got better, but the point remains that Voyager did that as well. And that's a lot of what I'm getting from both of these episodes so far. I'm only two episodes in, and it's just, oh, that's cool, oh, oh, that, oh. No, you want me to focus on this. And the episode, it, it's like... It's like I'm walking through a museum. Yes, I'm a geek. I like museums. Shut up. I like some museums. You know, I like good museums. And I'm walking through the museum, and I see something, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And I go over, and I want to learn more about it. And you know what I get? I get a plaque that's about this big with four sentences on it. Meanwhile, the tour guide, which is probably in my ear earphones is directing me over there towards something I don't give a damn about and I'm completely deinvested in. And it's yammering on and on and on and, oh God, I'm describing myself. <laughs> Do you get my point? It feels like what we're seeing here is some interesting science fiction that is being buried under some boring television. And I'm saying that very specifically because... As I've, as I know I've already talked about, because, you know, by now you've seen some of my TOS stuff. That was the exact problem that TOS was running into. That people, the, the executives, the people who made the decisions about these things, the people who called the shots, wanted what was safe. And I'm just gonna be blunt here, what is safe is generally boring. De-investing, de-interesting. It's safe specifically because of the fact that it's bland. That's what broad humor means. I know that's that's humor, but broad interest, broad uh, appeal is all about flattening the curve so it appeals very little to the largest group possible. It'll be like, huh, okay, and that's it. I, I've talked about this concept several times, and it feels like that is exactly what is hampering Enterprise so far. <sighs> but I'm only two episodes in. I'm not quitting. God, I, I, I want to. Someone, I, I said I'd say this at the end, and I didn't forget. Someone actually asked me if all of season, or almost all of season one and season two were going to be Lamentations. You notice I haven't given the Lamentation lab label yet. We'll see if we do. 
as ever, I never plan that in advance. It's it's after I go through the episode that I really decide that. But <laughs> I have to admit, I actively want to stop watching this is probably not the most glowing endorsement that I could give. <sighs> I'll see you next week, guys. Cool.